0: to start with a story about a young girl, a young girl whose family attended a church where communion was celebrated on the first Sunday of every month. On those communion Sundays, there would be two offerings that were received. The first one for the general fund, the, the regular offering was received before the sermon. The second one was for benevolence. It was received before communion. This little girl's family would, would contribute to both of these offerings. And Her mom would give her a dime, a dime that she could place into the offering plate for that general fund offering. But on the occasion of her ninth birthday, which happened to be a communion Sunday, her mom gave her two dimes, one for each of those offering plates. And following the benevolence offering, it was time for communion, and when it was her family's turn, the the row was invited to come forward to the communion rail, and for the very first time, this young girl got up to go up with her family. Her mom noticed what she was doing and said, Honey, you're not quite ready. Have a seat, and we'll talk more about about this when we get home this afternoon. The little girl got a confused look on her face. She looked up at her mom and said, But but mom, I just paid for it. (laughs) It's a humorous story, but it points out a very adult attitude. Very often adults believe that they can do things that there are certain things that they can do to earn God's salvation. That by doing enough good stuff, by avoiding the bad stuff, by putting money in the offering plate, or by participating in the ministries of the church, they can earn God's salvation. That little girl was confused about communion. But I think that many people are, are confused about the sacraments of the church. They understand, and yet they don't fully understand about baptism and communion and what they mean. As a child I remember watching young babies get baptized. My lasting memory from those moments is that there were a lot of babies who don't like getting wet because there sure were a lot of babies crying through their whole baptism. I grew up in the Lutheran church and my memory of communion in the Lutheran church was watching my parents fill out the card that registered their participation in communion. When it was time for our family's row to go up to the communion rail, my parents would get up, they'd hand the card to the usher, and they'd head up to the communion rail where the pastor would give them something to eat and something to drink. I remember thinking, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, how come nobody's given me anything to eat or drink? Baptism is the, the New Testament equivalent of, um, of circumcision, the Old Testament practice of Circumcision. And I think that there are a lot of people who don't fully get what we're talking about when we talk about baptism, when we talk about communion. And it's not just kids who don't get it, right? Several times a year, we'll get a call from somebody in our community who has no connection to Crosspoint. And they'll ask the question Will you baptize my baby? Typically, we'll have a conversation about what baptism is and and then explain that baptism is a sacrament which is for church members and their children. Following that conversation, typically the question comes to mind, why did that person want to baptize their baby? Why does a person baptize their child? Why do you baptize your children? Baptism is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament practice of circumcision. The Jews of Paul's day believed that if they were circumcised, then they would be automatically in a right relationship with God. But in our passage today, Paul is challenging that thinking, and I want us to go to that passage together right now. And I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. It's a short passage. It's a challenging passage to understand, and so I want us to pay close attention as we read from it. Romans chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading at verse 25. Paul writes, Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code in circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. It's a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? And it could be challenging to to understand fully what, what Paul is getting at here. And so let me offer this paraphrase, which also brings it into our context. So what if you've been baptized? So what if you're a church member? This only counts for anything if there's been a real change in your life, if your heart has been truly affected. Don't you know that you are not a Christian if you're only one externally? That real Christianity is not about having confidence in external things, No, a Christian is someone who is a Christian inside. What matters is inner baptism, a heart membership of God's people. And this is a supernatural work, not a human one. There was a man named John who on his lunch break walked into his bank to cash a $100 check. After he he cashed the check, he went to the receptionist and asked her to validate his parking ticket, but she refused. He explained he was a, a substantial depositor in that bank and and yet again, she refused, and she explained that, that validations were only offered for transactions which involved a deposit. Paul, or John was pretty certain that he was being treated this way because of the way he looked. He'd come straight from the construction site where he'd been working, and he, he had dirty construction clothes on. He even thought that the bank manager had looked at him like he'd crawled out from underneath some kind of a rock. So Paul called up the bank headquarters to file a complaint and when nobody returned his call he began emptying his bank account, one million dollars at a time. In John's words, whether you have a hundred dollars in the bank or a million dollars in the bank, they owe you the courtesy of stamping your parking ticket. I think a story points out the truth that very often we judge people based on their appearance. And very often we're wrong in those judgments. We make that mistake, but God never does. We're reminded in 1 Samuel chapter 16 man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is what the Apostle Paul is getting at in our passage this morning. He's dealing with the objections of people who consider themselves to be so religious that they don't need the gospel. People would say, I am so good, I don't need grace. Or I'm a part of the religious community, so God already accepts me. The issue is the Jewish practice of circumcision and the belief of of the Jew that if you are circumcised, then you are automatically saved. But the point of our passage is that no one is saved simply by participating in the sacraments. And so the question that follows that is, what's the meaning of the, the sacraments? What's the purpose of the sacraments? When I was growing up, I love to play connect the dots. I love starting with what appeared to be just a random set of dots and then watch the mystery resolved as the dots were connected. Growing in our faith can be a bit like connecting the dots. Growing in our faith involves learning what, what the connection between the things that Christians are supposed to do and the meaning behind those things. As we continue our summer sermon series, we're, we're preaching a series called Questions Worth Asking. It's based on a series of questions that several of you submitted months ago. and We were working through them one at a time. It's been a wonderful series at this point. I've loved sitting under Pastor Don and Pastor Danny's teachings. We take these questions and, and in 30 minutes try to answer them as fully as we can. The question that we're looking at today was submitted like this. What is the meaning of the sacraments? This morning I want to connect some dots. When we talk about communion, we we talk about we're we're partaking of the the body and the, the blood of Christ, the bread and the wine. But what deeper meaning is that connected to? In baptism, we sprinkle or we immerse people in water. What deeper meaning is that connected to? Our passage today speaks to those ideas. There's a Bible commentator by the name of Robert Haldane who spoke to this passage and wrote about this passage from Romans chapter 2. And he says in the midst of his writing, Paul here pursues the Jew into his last retreat. The Jew was the example in Paul's day of, of the religious person. And they had begun defending themselves against Paul's gospel by arguing that they possessed the law. God had given his law to his chosen people, the Jews, through Moses on Mount Sinai. And earlier in chapter 2, Paul has begun his his answer to that claim by saying that, yes, possession of the law is a great privilege, but it does the person possessing the law no good unless they actually obey the law. The Jews and everyone else had been guilty of breaking the law. And so it's not enough to say, I have the law, therefore I don't need the gospel. See, they missed the point completely. God had given the law to reveal to the Jew the need for God's grace. God's given the law to us to reveal to us our need for God's grace. Jesus summed up the law with two commands. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love your neighbor. Friends, I fail to do that every day multiple times every day I need God's grace and I know that you do as well But the Jew had one last card to play one last argument to make and that was circumcision Jews had been circumcised and that circumcision had brought them into fellowship in the community of God's people People that God had made salvation promises to it's as if saying that because of circumcision they become a member of the community and because of that membership their salvation is certain. The Jews believe this, just like many people today believe that they are saved because they've been baptized or because they're members of a church. There were Jewish rabbinical writings of that day which claim that if you're circumcised then your salvation is certain. Even one rabbinical writing, one rabbi who painted the word picture showing Abraham sitting before the gate of hell who didn't allow that any circumcised Israelite should enter there. The argument is that salvation is for the Jews, and that what makes a person a Jew is circumcision. Even today, many Jews don't know what, for certain what makes a person a true Jew. The most common answer is that a Jew is someone who's a descendant of Abraham. But the question that that prompts is, what about Ishmael? And the people who are descendants of Ishmael, the, the Arabs, Remember, Abraham had two sons, Isaac, who was Abraham's son with his wife, Sarah, and Ishmael, who was Abraham's son with Sarah's maid, Hagar. But Ishmael's descendants were not Jews. To account for this, the official Jewish definition is that a a Jew, a true Jew, is someone who has a Jewish mother. Under that reasoning, Isaac would be a Jew and Ishmael would not be. But what about if there was someone who was a, the son, the, the daughter of a, a good Jewish mother, or perhaps the child of, of good Jewish parents who later converts to Christianity? Is that person still a Jew? According to this official theory, someone who was born of a Jewish mother who converts to Christianity is still a Jew. To account for this, many Jewish circles... Declare that conversion to Christianity is not only grounds to declare that that person is, is no longer a Jew, but also to exclude that person from their biological family. When I was a teenager, I remember that my mom led a Jewish friend to the Lord. This woman accepted Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And yet she wasn't willing to publicly profess her faith because of the fear of being excluded from her family. She would attend church with us, but she never let her family know that she had become a Christian. It wasn't until both of her parents had passed away that she was willing to publicly profess her faith. So what is it that makes a person a true Jew? Paul's answer to this question is is radical. And notice he doesn't say that a person doesn't have to be a Jew to be saved. Instead, Paul says that the one who is to be a true Jew, one is to be a true Jew, but that that's not based on external criteria. It's not based on possession of the law, descent from Abraham, or circumcision. Paul says it requires a new heart. In our passage today, we read, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Now, most of us are not personally affected by this debate over what makes someone a true Jew. And and for that reason, I imagine some of you have checked out for the past couple of minutes. If that's true for you, it's time to check back in. See, the matter of a new heart, which is accomplished in us by the Holy Spirit, is our concern. And as far as sacraments go, the issue is the relationship between the sacraments and the reality of that new heart. So let's define a sacrament from a a Christian point of view. There are four elements to define a sacrament. First of all, a sacrament is a divine ordinance that's instituted by Christ himself. The New Testament sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion were instituted by Christ, commanded by Christ that his people observe. And they replaced the Old Testament sacraments of circumcision and the Passover. Jesus instituted baptism when he said to his disciples, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper when he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Secondly, a sacrament uses material elements as visible signs of God's blessing. In communion, the the signs are the bread, which signifies Christ's broken body, and the the cup or the the wine or the juice, which signifies Christ's shed blood. In baptism, the sign is is water. But we need to realize that the the sign is not the same as the reality itself, right? Right? For example, a sign that you see on the highway. Say you're you're driving down the I-5 south from here, and you see a sign that says San Diego 25 miles. Now that sign is pointing you to San Diego, but that sign is not itself San Diego. Or if you see a sign that says drink Coca-Cola, you know that sign is not itself Coca-Cola. It's, it's encouraging you and pointing you in that direction. It's in that way that a sacrament ...points us to the spiritual reality. Baptism signifies our union with Christ. The sign is secondary. The reality is primary. The sign is outward and visible. The reality is inward and invisible. Third, a sacrament is a means of grace. This does not mean that spiritual life is automatically transmitted... ...to the person who participates in the sacrament like automatically making that person uh, saved and and their salvation being secured. That's the point that Paul is denying in his discussion of circumcision. But the text is not saying that the sacraments have no value. In fact, after Paul denies that someone can be saved by being circumcised in Romans chapter 2, he then speaks to the very important and great value of circumcision in Romans chapter 3. Earlier, the praise team in our worship time spoke to the value of baptism. For the adult believer who is, who is being baptized as a response to faith, God makes those promises and reminds them that they have been saved, that their forgiveness of sins is certain, and he promised them newness of life. With a child who's being baptized before the, the age of, of understanding or before they come to faith, we believe that, that God makes promises there too. The parents make promise to God to to raise their child to know him. The church community makes promises to the family that they will walk alongside that family and and help to raise that child, help to be a part of the spiritual nurture of that child. And we pray that that child will one day respond in true faith when salvation will be theirs. But what do we mean when we say that sacraments are a means of grace? When I say the sacraments are a means of grace, I don't mean that they provide saving grace. I mean that they provide strengthening and helping grace. Just like reading the Bible and and praying, help and strengthen our relationship with God. Participating in the sacraments help and strengthen our relationship with God. And then fourth, a sacrament is a seal, a a certification, a, a confirmation of the grace that it signifies. Earlier I was talking about signs that you could see where maybe a traveler was pointing in the correct direction for San- to go to San Diego or encouraged to drink Coca-Cola. But signs do other things as well. Signs indicate ownership. If you see a, a building with a sign that says Joe's Restaurant, you can be pretty certain that that restaurant belongs to Joe. Or if you see a building with a sign that says U.S. Courthouse, you know that building belongs to the federal government. And signs also validate or authenticate a document. Maybe you get a seal stamped onto your passport or a seal stamped onto your, your school transcript. They validate that document. Theologians call the sacrament signs and seals of some reality. Signs because they point to something and seals because they authenticate the one who is submitting to that sacrament. That's why the sign of baptism was so important to Martin Luther. There were times that we're told in the midst of the Reformation that Luther would be under so much stress, and he'd become so confused that his, his emotions would go up and down, and he would begin to doubt, begin to doubt the value of his work, begin to doubt his faith, begin to doubt even the work of Christ on his behalf. We're told that in those moments very often Luther would write on the table in front of him using chalk. He'd write the Latin words, "baptizatus sum, which means I have been baptized. It would remind him of his baptism, remind him of that faith decision that he had made. Remind him that Jesus had promised forgiveness of sins. Remind him that Jesus had claimed him as his own and remind him of his identity in Christ, in Christ's death and in his resurrection. As we participate in the sacraments, as we participate in communion, we believe that Jesus is spiritually present with the believer in that moment. That through the Holy Spirit, Jesus meets with each person who receives the bread and the wine. And our hearts are united with him by faith. It's a time of great encouragement for believers as they experience that that encounter with Christ. Being a Jew was important, right? And in a sense, every saved person must be a part of God's covenant people. But only if that that membership is by faith. Someone must be a member of God's family inwardly and spiritually. Not as a physical descendant of, of Abraham. No, the community of faith, we are spiritual descendants of Abraham. Now in Romans chapter 2, Paul has been dealing with people who would agree with his condemnation of that pagan unbeliever, but they would excuse themselves. They would say, I'm, I'm okay with God because I'm religious, because I live by this moral code, much higher moral code than, than the heathen that he is talking to, or I'm a part of the religious community and therefore I am, I am saved. Do you know anybody like that today? I think we all do, Right? We know the person who says, I'm a good person. I do good things. I'm going to heaven when I die. The person says, I grew up in a Christian home, therefore I'm a Christian on that basis. Or I went to a Christian school or I'm a long-standing member of a church. My salvation is secure. Paul would say to those people, first of all, that knowledge alone, even knowledge of the highest spiritual and moral principles, does not win God's approval. In fact, superior knowledge can lead to greater condemnation if we don't live in obedience to those higher standards. Secondly, membership in a religious community, whether it's the the covenant nation of Israel or the the visible church today, does not guarantee that you have earned and gained God's favor. It's not that being a part of the visible community of, of faith is not important, it's incredibly important. But salvation is not won by external associations. God does not look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Jews have been saved, but it's not because they're Jews. Church members are being saved, but it's not because they're church members. If anyone could perfectly keep the law, they would be saved by keeping the law. But no one can perfectly keep the law. We have all broken the law. And because of that, we can only be saved by Christ's work on the cross and that work being appropriated to our lives by the Holy Spirit. That alone brings us into the true community of God's elect people. Third, the sacraments where we're talking about either the Old Testament or the New Testament periods save no one. They point to what does save, but they are not the reality themselves. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. In Christ alone. And then fourth, if we are to be saved, it has to be by the work of Jesus Christ. When David sinned with Bathsheba, he he confessed that sin to God. We see his words in Psalm 51. But David didn't trust in his confession. He knew his salvation was a work of God. And so he continued that prayer by saying, cleanse me with hyssop. His up was used to sprinkle the blood of the sacrificial animal, in that Jewish sacrificial system. David was asking for, for, to be um, cleansed by the blood of the atonement. And then he added, create in me a pure heart. David knew that this was something that could only be accomplished by the Holy Spirit. For those who have put their trust in Jesus, who have given, been given that new heart that Paul talks about, Both baptism and communion are powerful reminders that we belong to God, that Jesus' work is sufficient, and that we are secure in his forever family because he will hold us fast. I want to finish with one last observation. In the last verse of our passage today Paul uses a pun that's that's not translatable in English but it points back to that identification as a Jew that we started with the word Jew comes from the name Judah Judah was Jacob's fourth son and the name Judah means praise when Leah gave birth to Judah she said this time I will praise the Lord and so she named him Judah Later, when Jacob was dying, he used that same pun, and he, he said to Judah, Judah, your brothers will praise you. This is the pun that Paul uses at the end of our passage. He says, such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. What he means is, true Jewishness is from God and is spiritual. It does not come from men by outward things like circumcision. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. God looks beyond our words and He looks for the reality of that new heart within us. The problem with the Jew that Paul is addressing is that they were trusting in the sacrament itself to save them, which of course it can't. The sacrament is intended to point us to the reality of what Christ has done for us. God looks at you. God looks at me. He looks beyond our profession, beyond our baptism, beyond our, our church membership, and he looks for the reality of the new heart. Do you have one? If you don't, pray today. Pray David's prayer today. Lord, create in me a clean heart. Create in me a pure heart. Create in me a new heart that beats strongly for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your finished work on the cross, which changes everything for us. It changes our todays and it changes our eternities. And Lord, we thank you for that work. Lord, thank you for the reminders that we are given through baptism and through communion. Lord, that you have done that work and that we are secure in your forever family when we are with, in your family by faith. Lord, may we be reminded of that each time we partake of communion. May it be a rich experience, that spiritual encounter with you, reminding us of who we are. Reminding us of whose we are. Lord, we want to lift up people from our church family who are are struggling with their health right now. We lift up Nona Sebasma and the the tests that she's going to undergo this week. We pray that you would give the doctors wisdom, that you give them discernment. Lord, we pray that you would give Alan and Nona a a peace that can only come from you, that you would walk with them during this time. We lift up Joanne Vandermeulen and and pray for the doctors to to give wisdom and and how to to treat what is going on with her. We pray for for full and complete healing for Joanne. Lord, we lift up Julie Bykirk and her family as they grieve the loss of Julie's father this week. We ask that you would walk beside them, that you would wrap your arms around them and be their peace and their comfort in this time. And Lord, we thank you. Or how you are leading some some young men and and counselors, cadet counselors and cadets, to the cadet camperee. We pray that you would watch over them and protect them, that you would give them good health during the entire time that they are gone, that there would be a a spiritual encounter that they experience with you, Jesus, and Lord, that there would be a lot of fun that they get to experience. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.